0: Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Grasberry.
1: This is Frank Pelican.
0: And this is episode 55. We're recording on December 8th, 2019. Tonight's episode is going to be focused on the top five films of 1979. Last week, we covered the top five films of 69. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be covering 89 then and then uh, wrapping up the year with 99 <clears throat> So Frank we're jumping 10 years in the future from last week uh, Anything you see like radically different in that short time period
1: I mean a lot's happened in film in the 10 years um, this is the the end of my favorite decade of movies um, so there's a lot of a lot of great films that have come out in the interim um, a lot of really great films this year as well um I think you're seeing. I don't know I mean I, I guess you saw the beginning of 69 like kind of that really like full-fledged move away from the studio system and a lot of the stuff here is I mean there's several foreign films on this list but also a couple of movies that are um English language that are definitely like creator controlled and you know bear the mark of the directors on them um And really, like, it's moving into what's going to become the the optimism of the 1980s, Um, you know, in terms of, like, at least in our country with, like, you know, economic prosperity and just that sort of, like, golden age of our childhood, kind of. But there still is some, you know, reconciling with. I guess like the decade that was the 70s in these movies. Yeah, it definitely
0: feels to me like a lot of the movies on this list is, this is acting like, even for the four, like the four movies and then the American movies, it feels like a purge of some sort. Yeah. Like they're purging their past and moving into a different era.
1: Finally getting far enough away from some pretty traumatic events, at least in a, well, three of the movies, really. Four of the movies. Four of the movies, yeah. Um, Where it's far enough away where someone can have like a more objective eye as to those events mm-hmm. um and there's a couple of them where like we don't necessarily like as american viewers especially at our age don't have the same connection to those events i think that maybe at the time people would have in their respective countries but um i think it's they're still pretty powerful mm-hmm. um and there's a lot of stuff that came out this year there's some stuff that you know didn't go on the list that has similar feels like what um it's a movie called Hardcore that I like a lot from this year. It's a George C. Scott movie about a man trying to rescue his daughter from like mm-hmm. basically like being like enslaved in pornography. Um that's really rough, very, very bleak movie. Um Mad Max is this year. Um The couple other things like uh, Vengeance is mine, which we went over in The Psychopaths, which is one of my favorite like and you know, like hard boiled <coughs> serial killer style mm-hmm. movies. Um, the warriors is this year, which is another look at like, I guess, like kind of almost like the antithesis of like the flower power movement in a lot of ways. Like, but instead of being like peace and love, it's violence and domination by those different groups. Um, and then there's a couple of like movies from seminal directors that came out. Um, Tess, Roman Polanski's movie is this year and Tess is a, a pretty great movie. Um, and Manhattan is this year, which is one of my favorite Woody Allen movies. Mm. Um, really difficult for me to put Woody Allen on any list just because, like, I don't know that I ever want <clears throat> to... Even though I love some of his movies, like, quite a bit, um, I, it's it's hard for me to watch them anymore just because of, like, how awful a person Woody Allen became, like, over the past 20 years. Um, and then a couple other small movies, like Murder by Decree is this year, and um, Being There is this year, and they're both... Oh, movies.
0: being being there seventy nine, yeah, really, and you didn't put being there. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not as big a fan. I mean, oh, I that's like, right, that was me and Chuck, right? Yeah, that I, I, I like being there, there, but it's yeah. not
1: doesn't have the same, I don't know. Okay. Charm, I guess, as it does. I think it. I just
0: like lump you in sometimes with like my things I like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't dislike being there. I think being there's a good movie, but I like all five of these movies and probably like five of the other movies I already said would have gone on the list above being there, right? Um, I actually, I struggled with um, both Tess and the Warriors putting them on the list just because I like those movies so much, especially the Warriors. And I I don't know that you can call the Warriors like underrated or like a hidden gem because I think everyone from at least our age like knows the Warriors pretty well. But I think that the Warriors, while it's like a kind of like a cult, almost like pulp style movie, I think it's. I think it's much greater than what people give it credit for sometimes, and I, I think it's a pretty important movie.
0: Thematically, though, it really doesn't fit into this list in a lot of ways to me, nah. just because it's almost like a precursor to the fear of the '80s of gangs and stuff like that. It's almost like what's right. to come, as opposed to
1: well, I mean, it's it, it thematically you can put it with like Mad Max, sure, sure, it's basically the same idea. Yeah. Agree, just that like society's going to break down to the point where there's going to be, like, these roving groups of, right. like, youths who have no respect for, and obviously, like, that never came, like, honestly the fruition in the way that, like, the directors kind of saw it, but just that sort of, like, where do we go from here type thing with, like, kids, and I guess this may be more, like, the disillusion of the nuclear family coming out of the 70s into the 80s, sure. <clears throat> the idea of, like, the latchkey kid, which is, like, pretty soon like maybe around this time or soon after it where um kids who were taking care of themselves and basically raising themselves right. because it was so expensive to live in this country that yeah every member of the family had to work so that kids were home by themselves and
0: yeah it's hard for me to put myself in that perspective but i i mean i guess i can see it but i mean uh, us being of that generation of latchkey kids TV generation it's just, it's it's a silly notion to me. So, like, when I right. look back on some of those movies that deal with those themes, it's just kind of stupid to me. <clears even.
1: throat> well, because who could have foreseen cable television and video games, you know, being the things sure. that, that raised us, basically. Mm. Now, my, my mom was home um, until I was a young teenager, I guess. Mm. When my brother went to school, she got a job in the school system. Um, so my mom was home with me like most of the time when I got home like in my formative years yeah. Um. but still like she was busy and I was going to play Nintendo for an hour or two or yeah and, and I got dropped cartoon. off at my
0: grandmother's but my grandmother you know like a kind of typical depression era you know woman like spent the days doing stuff around the house and cleaning and you know doing it just always had yeah. something to do cooking all day so I was left with the Fall Guy and, right. and, you know, Price is Right and Press Your Luck and, like, you know, the blocks of television, yeah. like the game shows. And so, yeah, like, I mean, um, but yeah, so it always seems, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, who could have anticipated that Nintendo and all that stuff? Right. Who could have anticipated that we would have had something to raise us other than gang leaders, I guess. But it's still just a, it feels dumb to me. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's why I don't like Mad Max as much. No, um,
1: um, Ma- Mad Max though is like looking at completely different because that's more looking at like like the oil crisis and stuff as being the thing that was going to destroy mm-hmm. us. That, you know, people's dependence, and in a lot of ways, I guess it has, but still, like not to that level. Like um, you said, it still involves like
0: these like teenagers that you know end up becoming unruly and criminals and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, don't know, I got that whole concept just, I'm not a big fan of the warriors as you are. So it's, I, I just find those things kind of silly a lot of times. Yeah. But, <clears throat> um, else oh, there's somebody else on that list I want to mention. like what you just said.
1: Murder by decree, Manhattan.
0: Oh, Manhattan. Yeah. We talked about Woody Allen for a pretty long time. Unfortunately, I think during somebody's like retrospective that died, <clears throat> I can't remember who it was, but we ended up talking about him for quite a while at the end of an episode. I think one time, or maybe that was Polanski that we ended up talking about. But Woody Allen came into that conversation. But yeah, it's really f- interesting to me that whole Woody Allen thing with you because like there's some people I get, like I he makes me uncomfortable, but it's like I. He makes me less uncomfortable for some reason than so many other people do.
1: Like, Polanski makes me more uncomfortable than Woody Allen does. And you put... I think Polanski's a creep and a coward, but in terms of, like, what we know of Polanski, you've got one incident that you look at for Polanski. Sure. And now he's never owned up to it and never been punished for it, and he's run from it for 40 years, 40 plus years at this point. Uh-huh. Woody Allen systematically abused a child or multiple children possibly that were under his care as like a father for like
0: Oh, I didn't know there were multiple children. I yeah, thought it was um I thought it was the girl that he ended up marrying. Well,
1: there's her, but there's also um Rowan Farrow's sister. Mm-hmm. uh Tia Farrow, maybe or I, I think is the the lady's um, name. Yeah. That there's accusations that he would like take her up to the attic and like basically like molest her. No, jeez, I never, I heard that. <clears throat> while he was her father, mm. and I mean, he's obviously still like her father, but right. like while he was like her caregiver, basically, uh, and mm. and that's just rate when you look at all the children that like they brought in to their home, like it raises a possibility like what else has never come out, and it's sure, just, mm-hmm. and then it's also that you look at. Like Polanski never made a a thing about making movies about older men, like sexually, like con, like having sexual conquest over younger women. Mm-hmm. And Alan's big thing is, yeah, They're especially right. in like the nineties, is always like the older, sure,
0: the nineties, the yeah. older, except for Bullets Over Broadway. Although the I guess it's just the gender reversal there, right? Yeah, to some degree.
1: You know, like Mighty Aphrodite has that in it a lot. Sure. And, um, I don't know it's just it's it's really uncomfortable because yeah. it's almost like him trying to get tacit approval through his art for what he did in mm. real life and it's it's gross like I don't know I just I can see that I I've always tried to like divorce real life events from art and I think a lot of times I can do that but in his case I think that it's it's too much and I can't That's a fair case
0: yeah I didn't know anything other than the the one uh, daughter yeah, it was the,
1: maybe like three or four years ago.
0: There and was... I and and after they were married for all this time, like I kind of just stopped thinking about it because if they were married for that long after the fact, it's like I figure there had to be something there. Uh, but um, that was real, despite how it started. But yeah, I mean, if there's like more cases, then that's pretty
1: horrific. Yeah, I mean, Rowan Farrow wrote a really long article for one of the magazines, like maybe mm. Vanity Fair or something, about it. Mm. Um, with his own recollections and then, like, gotcha. interviews with his his sister. And it's, it's pretty compelling and it's, it's incredibly, like, it's 100% believable. And, yeah. like, I don't doubt that mm. it happened. So, That's... even though he's, like, always denied it, like, I don't find his denials to be credible. So, I don't know. I just, I can't support. The only, the, the one, because we've talked about doing like nostalgic movies or movies about childhood mm-hmm. and um, Stardust Memories, I think like from a film standpoint, I think it's still like an amazing movie and th- it would be hard for me to leave that off a list, but, and I still might like yeah. not be able to put it on there, mm-hmm. even though I think it's a really well done yeah. film about like childhood and growing up. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So let's go ahead and get started then. <clears throat> Number five on your list, I'm going to butcher
0: so many of these names, number five on your list is uh, The Tin Drum, it's uh, directed by Volker Schlondorf, Uh, stars David Bennett, Mario Adorf, Angela Winkler, has an 82% from critics, 84% from audiences, Uh, it won the best forum film from the Oscars that year, and it shared the Palme d'Or with Apocalypse Now, Um, so... uh, a lot of critical praise for the movie yeah. uh, during...
1: i actually surprised it's not higher than 83% <clears throat> from critics. Yeah. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it? So it's set loosely over, um, I guess, probably about a 80-year period of time, 70-year period of time um, in Poland. Um, primarily focuses on... It, it starts well in the past with... Um, Oscar, who's the main character of the film's grandfather and how his mother was born and then his own birth. Um, Oscar is this basically like fully formed person that gets, that's born and decides early in his life that he's going to stop growing at three years old and just remain the size of a three-year-old for his entire life. Um, he's gifted a tin drum by his mother. He uses the drum to like punctuate like the beats of his drum to punctuate things that he finds to be disagreeable or unjust. Um, the movie f- takes place over like the preoccupation by the Nazis through Nazi occupation and then invasion and then post-war after the Americans come in and kind of like liberate Poland, um, Americans and the Russians, because I guess it's the Russians towards the end the Russian army that is liberating his town specifically Um, until he finally decides that he's going to grow up. Uh, He's going to like start growing again, which is like the last 15 minutes of the movie. Um, It's a beautifully shot film. And I think it's the reason why I've, I've always held it in really high regard. Um, I love the way it looks. Uh, Schlondorf, has this amazing eye for scene and setting and just the way that he can film interiors and make them like warm and inviting. And also exteriors feel like expansive and, um, kind of a confusing film in terms of like what you're supposed to take from it. Um, I think that, the one downfall and the reason why it's not higher on the list, because when we first made the list, like I I knew tin drum was 79 and I knew it was going to be on my list. And I, I really thought like prior to watching it again, that it would be number one um, or one or two. Um, but watching it this time, and I, I literally just watched this movie last night, uh, probably for the fourth time ever, like in total. um, I don't know that it does enough. ...to explain the symbolism of what it's trying to show you. And my guess for what's happening in this movie is that... ...it's somehow, if not a condemnation, at least an examination... ...of the cultural and social mindset of the Polish people... ...as they were, like, basically being, like, invaded by the Nazi party. And the fact that Oscar is a collaborator in a lot of ways... I think is a condemnation of that. So there's a couple scenes in the movie where Oscar, uh, there's a bunch of scenes in the movie where Oscar is really upset and he bangs on his drum. And then one of his things is that if he screams, it causes glass to shatter. And he mostly does that when he's upset about things that are directly affecting him. And there's a couple of times where things negatively affect people around him, where he could use those abilities to like, if not stop an event from happening, at least like bring light to its happening, but he just stands there and watches and lets it happen. And so I'm wondering if it isn't more like the ideas about this generation of people whose development was like kind of retarded by war, you know, and their unwillingness to like raise their voices against oppression or, the actual like you know because there's a lot of people that are like nazi sympathizers in his town um particularly what's the the guy that runs the um uh, the guy that's like the nazi youth leader yeah i can't it's like yeah. his uncle or something mm-hmm. like that um the way that they do the family dynamic is difficult and some of that's on purpose because like he's not sure who his father is and then sure. that's kind of like um juxtaposed with later a child is born to like a young woman and it might be his, but it might also be his father's or the guy that may be his father or identifies as his father.
0: Identifies his father. Cause it's not, we find out at some point that's that guy's not really his father.
1: Do you think that's ever fully? Confirmed? I'm pretty sure.
0: Yeah. There's a scene in it where it's like, I knew at the, one point, like, yeah, it's like, it's definitely See, this I, one.
1: But I, 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 so he's <clears> an unreliable narrator anyway. Sure. And I often think that, like, those kind of things that you find out are only because it's what he wants it to be and not necessarily that it's true. I don't know that you ever know. I don't
0: know, but I, I don't believe that. I, from the voiceover, the, the voiceover is, for, for some a kid who, like, rarely, like, talks, and certainly not that eloquently, this is, like, far in the future. It's like, I think he has enough distance at that point, the way he speaks of things to under to some degree so, understand
1: again, like I, I, I think that goes with what I think this movie's about. I think it's, I think the voiceover is him in the future trying to reconcile what he did to make it seem like he wasn't as bad as he was. Like it's not as bad hmm. for him to have like, you know, because first opportunity he goes off and basically joins like the Nazi circus as an entertainer. Sure. Yeah. And that's what saves him from, you know, war basically is like wearing like a, like an SS officer uniform and performing with like other little people, mm-hmm. you know, cause he's a dwarf at the, that's what he says. He's decided to be a dwarf for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he'll teach his own son how to do that as well. Like how to stop growing mm-hmm. if he decides he doesn't want to grow anymore. And I, I it, it, again, like, I don't know, I mean, aside from, like, the basic history of, you know, World War II and understanding that Poland was invaded and occupied, um, I don't know enough about that history or, like, Poland in general to, like, know for sure. But there has to be some, like, condemnation of this generation of people who refuse to, like, stand up and sacrifice themselves to fight against that oppression who are just willing to kind of go along with it.
0: That's really interesting because it's 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 totally, totally not what contemporary American reviews, like if they ever got into what they thought this movie was about. And I've had a really hard time with this movie because of the exact reasons you've mentioned about. We've talked about it a lot offline about how I felt like I just didn't get this movie. Like, I think it's a marvel in terms of direction yeah. and cinematography and... I think it's captivating. I mean, like it made me watch it. What was it? Two hours and 40 minutes Mm. in like two sittings, which is really good for me. And it's like, I, I thought it was really interesting and intriguing, but it's like at the end of it, it's like, I don't know what the hell this movie was about. And, um, reading the reviews, I don't think a lot of the people that were hailing it as this incredible movie really understood what it was about either, because They purposefully never mention anything about the meaning or the subtext of this movie. Or they talk a lot about how it's the rejection of uh, war and, like, going back to, like, a childlike innocence. And I think that is way off. I don't know what this movie is about,
1: but I'm pretty pretty sure that that's off. So, Oscar is not innocent at all. No. And Oscar, like... I think maybe the first mistake in viewing this movie is if you view it with Oscar as the protagonist, because he's not, he's the main character, but he's not a sympathetic character and he's also not a good person. No. You know, and there's like, there's a a lot of scenes early on where, where Oscar's trying to, even at a very early age. And it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to watch because the, um, uh, David Bennett or whatever his name is that plays Oscar was only 11 years old when he filmed this movie. So he's like legitimately just a kid. Sure. Filming this movie where he tries to insert himself into sexual situations. Yeah. Like watching um, his dad like rub his mom's like boobs while they're Mm -hmm. singing and then trying to climb under his grandmother's skirt to go back into the womb and um, making his aunt read him about an orgy and... um, Yeah. Uh, well, and then
0: there's later scenes with him performing cunnilingus and, right, like, you right. know, all these other things, which I think actually got it banned in the U.S. for a while. For no, they the,
1: removed that scene. It oh, was, is that what happened? Yeah, it was banned.
0: Well, uh, Oklahoma, right? Right. There's like case in Oklahoma where it got banned initially because it, right. they called it yeah, child it was, pornography.
1: Yeah, Oklahoma, and then they tried to, like, arrest some guy for renting right. it. Right. Um, good So good old I, Reagan years. I, or, I think that looking at him as, an, as a protagonist, like... I guess maybe you could read it as like a condemnation of war, but he never even condemns war or violence himself. Sure. Well, I mean, Ebert calls
0: the Oscar character, he says that he thinks the movie, and one of those points is he thinks the movie's compromised, um, that Oscar himself is compromised in his rejection of the world's evil by his own behavior as the most spiteful, egocentric, cold and calculating character in all the film outside of Hitler.
1: Right. That's not wrong. <laughs> right. And you look at like the end of the movie when um, they're down in the basement and um, Alfred is, who's been like the guy that could possibly be his father at one Mm -hmm. point, has been a decent person for most of the movie. Like he's not a bad person and they tell him to take off his Nazi party pin as the Russians are like Mm -hmm. breaking into their house to come down and get him. So he doesn't get killed, and Oscar puts him in a position where he has to like lure the pin, kills him, mm-hmm. like he stabs it into his hand, and then mm-hmm. like he puts it in his mouth to try and hide it, and ends up swallowing this pin, and then gets shot and killed for it. And Oscar pretends like he's upset by it, but ultimately he just wants to move back with Maria, like the girl that he thinks that might have fathered his son. Right. And Kurt or whatever the little kid is called. And it's at the the funeral for Alfred where he's getting buried in like produce boxes or whatever. Like they're nailed together. Where now like, oh, well now I'm going to grow up. Like now, right. you know, it's my time to grow up. And then that's when he gets hit in the head with the rock and falls into the, you know, whatever, into the grave. And I think there, there's got to be, again, like not knowing enough about like polish society at the time and like especially post-war and there's got to be some kind of like symbolism there with like this generation that began another generation that's just as bad if not worse than them because like and you say alfred's like i
0: don't (laughs) your comments about woody allen is what i think of alfred to some degree like that, that that is not a good like he's 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 good up until the point that like well right like that that whole thing with the young girl that he ends up yeah, possibly he, fathering a child with yeah, or he, he beds wrong. her when she's i mean she's 16 i think right yeah in the context of the which movie. which is different times and i get that like you know but it's like it it, it still wasn't loving
1: no it's just yeah. you know i don't it's whatever yeah um convenience or necessity right. or so, i don't yeah, know yeah right but his wife is dead at that point sure it's a sure. terrible time and yeah He's able to, in some ways, like, kind of save her. Yeah. But Oscar's incredibly self-serving. And, I don't know. It's Just a terrible character. I mean, they're sitting there dancing on top of the pillboxes, like, right before D-Day. Sure. And, like, watching a group of nuns get murdered by the yeah. Nazis and then just kind of, like, Yeah, it celebrate. doesn't seem like there's a moral compass, necessarily, to that character. Because he does use
0: the drums early on. When the Nazis are marching, to he starts drumming to break their rhythm, mm-hmm. but then he like later joins them. So I, I think right. you're probably closer. There's something going on with collaborators there and stuff. I mean, it crossed my mind like that instance of it, like where it's like he was against them. It seems as a child, and then like even though he's not aging, like he's getting older a little, maybe a little
1: more wiser. Right, it's he's like, he's he's aging. He's not growing.
0: Right. Yeah, because he's like what, he's, he's probably like, what, 18 or 20 or something like that by the end of the movie when he decides to start aging again? Like, yeah. I think it's been about 16, 17 years or something. But I thought reading these reviews, and I read a lot of them, honestly, Ebert was the only one that I found to be honest whatsoever, at least, like, in where I think a lot of other critics... And normally I defend critics. I mean, I... Uh, even Probably even more than you do. Um... And, but this was a clear example, um, and really disappointing to me of just a group of people that I think didn't understand this damn movie at all thought it was really well done. Cause it is, it's, it's, it it's is. a, it's a, it's a incredibly well shot movie and it's, it's really, really well done. But I think a group of people that just got into this group think process and nobody wanted to admit they didn't understand what, exactly what the hell was going on and gave it positive reviews because of the technical marvel of it. And Ebert ends up sitting there and saying, like, uh let me where to start here. Uh He says, the central problem of the movie is, should I, as an audience member, decide to take the drum as, say, child's toy protest against the marching cadence of the German armies, or should I allow myself to be annoyed by the child's obnoxious habit of banging it whenever there's something not to his liking? Even if I buy the wretched drum as a moral symbol, I'm still stuck with a kid as a pious little bastard. The movie juxtaposes Oscar's one-man protest with the horror of World War II, but I'm not sure what the juxtaposition means. Did I miss everything? I've obviously taken... The story on a literal level but I don't think that means I misread the film as it stands. If we come in armed with the Gross novel and a sheaf of reviews it's maybe possible to discipline ourselves to read the Tim Drums a solemn allegorical statement but if we take the chance of just watching what's on the screen Schlondorf never makes the connection. We're stuck with this cretinous little kid just when Europe has enough troubles of its own um, I think that's the most honest thing that you can say about right. this movie to some degree. He gives it two out of four stars. Um, but it's like the most honest thing you say is, I think you're right. I think Schloendorf, and he's right, like, doesn't make a connection for the viewer. And
1: I think that's a failing of the film, ultimately. I mean, I've I've read the Tindrum, and it's been 14 or 15 years since I read it. And it's, it's more apparent in the book that he's not someone that you're supposed to like. And that he represents a class rather than just being a person. Um, and trying to distill like I, I think it's like a five or six hundred page book into like two and a half hours is always going to be difficult. Sure. I I think I think you're supposed to dislike Oscar, and I think the fact that he's a child predisposes most people to want to like him mm-hmm. and look at him as being like some kind of hero or symbol of like i don't know whatever like whatever like a desire to remain innocent right he doesn't want to remain innocent he just wants to he doesn't want to he doesn't ever want to grow into responsibility right so it's not about like because he wants to lose his innocence he's always trying to like sure like like have sex with people and Mm -hmm. you know uses his whatever but you know that shrill glass shattering voice is never used a good purpose. I, it's just there. There's right. a lot about them that's detestable, and I think that I I, I wish I knew more about the time period yeah. so I could make like better connections than when I'm like just the guesses that I'm making.
0: I, I but I'll be honest. I your yours is your analysis is more cogent than almost any analysis I read from an American reviewer in 1979.
1: Well, because people look at it and like you, you get these images that are amazing. Like these scenes that are amazing, Yeah, you know, and there's so many of them back to back. Like there's never a moment in that movie where you're not being presented with something that's interesting to look at. Right. And that's the beauty of the movie. And that's one of the reasons why I love the movie, because like even for being like kind of a muddled mess in terms of its like like allegorical import or whatever mm-hmm. you're still like continuously compelled to watch that movie through sure, and absolutely. like there's times where it makes you laugh sure, and there's times where it makes you cringe right. and I still think that it's like really powerful and really well shot and I think it's a really important movie I'm just not sure that like anyone anymore can really understand like the full like import of it or if it even knew it itself you know yeah. beyond just like wanting to try and adapt this, like, hugely important novel mm. to the screen. Sure, sure. So, yeah. there's a lot of scenes in it that remind me a lot of, like, early Bergman or, like, mid, mid-Bergman. I mean, I guess I'd be late Bergman. Like, there's a lot of stuff that reminds me of, um, and we talked about this a little offline, like, it reminds me of Fanny and Alexander in some mm-hmm. scenes. It reminds me of, like, scenes from a marriage at certain points. Um, and I, I, I like that a lot, and I think it's, there's a lot of talent in Schlondorf in terms of, like, you know, his ability to film that stuff. I just, yeah. Yeah. It, it, absolutely.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like he's, it's, it's, like I said, it's, I, this is a captivating movie to watch. I just don't know what's there. Like, yeah. or if there's much there.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to discuss. And that's why it's not higher on the list, even though originally, like, when we talked about this, I was like, oh, Tin going to be number one. Sure. But, um, it's not. Like, I think the four movies that come after it are much, yeah. If not, quote unquote, better movies, they're at least, more understandable and more I don't know like relatable right right
0: okay so let's go ahead and move on to number four on the list number four is a movie that we've actually already talked about if you want to go back to September of 2018 episode seven uh, we did the top five alien movies uh, and by alien just movies involving aliens it wasn't just the alien movies but we we discussed alien the original Alien by Ridley Scott, starring Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stan, John Hurt, and Ian Holm. What a hell of a cast right, that, that cast is. is! Like amazing. Yeah, it has a ninety-seven from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a ninety-four percent from audiences. Um, this was, I think, number one, right? On I mean, if My, I, I didn't go back to look at that, I'm pretty sure I'm it sure. was number one on yeah. your um, top five Alien movies list. Uh. But did you want to go ahead and maybe just kind of,
1: if you can, recap like what you like about it so much? Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's the quintessential man versus nature and space movie. Um, you know, the crew of the Nostromo is out. They respond to, a or they they find the wreckage of a spaceship, um, and they take aboard some things they find there, and it turns out that it's a parasitic species the xenomorph that infects and then kills them one by one until finally, like, you know, Sigourney Weaver's character triumphs over it. Um, that's a very, like, whatever, yeah. base description, but I think most people have probably seen Alien or at least understand what Alien is. Um, I think this... I think this movie's really important because it's a move enough away from... kind of like the stodgy view of, like, science fiction. I mean, science fiction was really popular, like, especially in, like, the 50s and 60s, but even up through the 70s, there's a lot of science fiction that is pretty well regarded. Um, And Alien is a perfect blending of, like, the science portion of science fiction with, like, the horror portion of what it would actually be like to encounter an alien species that's completely different than a human. You know, like, there's... Even though the alien has, like, humanoid characteristics, it's... The xenomorph is so different and so unknowable because you can't talk to it. You can't reason with it. Right. You know, you can't even, like, defeat it by natural methods because it's got ways to, like, counteract whatever. I mean, it's honestly, in my opinion, like, of all the movie monsters, um... I think it's probably the most perfect movie monster like ever. Um, and a lot of that goes with, with HR Geiger's original um, character sketch sketches and conceptualization of what the alien was going to be. Um, but also just the way that Scott films it um, like this thing that just can kind of be still and like unseeable, you know I mean? There's a scene early on in alien, not early on, probably about, not, obviously not early on, but like, Two thirds, halfway to two thirds of the way through the movie where they go into um I can't remember who dies there. It might be Scaret's character's death. Um, and when you pan into the shot, like once you see it, like the aliens just kinda hanging there, mm-hmm. like among like these cables and stuff, but it's like the first time you see the movie, like you can't recognize that it's there because it's really like you haven't seen it like in full yet so it's i don't know there's just so much so much perfect about it i mean from a personal standpoint um alien was one of the movies that i was kind of like obsessed with as a kid uh that franchise alien and aliens Mm -hmm. um i love the idea of the alien i read comic books like dark horse did a series of comics about aliens and i was just like like in love with the design and in love with the character and i think it's it's I, I think it's a perfect horror movie and a perfect science fiction movie, at least for me, because it doesn't bog you down too much in the minutia of like how they're in space or why this thing exists, but it gives you enough where you understand it. And then, I mean, through like brilliant performances by the entire cast and just the set design and the way that Scott like directs it to feel like so claustrophobic that it's just really like a, a pretty perfect, pretty perfect movie
0: yeah uh so yeah we talked about the top five sci-fi films of the 70s um you can go back in the archives like three or four months ago i think it yeah. was um sometime like august probably and you purposely didn't include this i think on your list right. because we had we'd, already, talked about we'd already talked about it mm-hmm. um since we're doing a specific year, I think it makes perfect sense to come back and include it. But we watched a lot of sci-fi like from that decade, like for that list, sure. and then and and it, this feels to me like coming at the very end of the decade as yeah something moving on from you called it stodgy, right? But this very kind of like um, oh what's what's his name the, the guy that wrote we um, the oh Yevgeny Zamyatin. Yes, like, you, like the way that, like, that is described, like, that world, like, that kind of, like, uh, everything's glass and white, and, right. like, that's how sci-fi felt to me from, like, the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s a lot, and this is dark, it's grimy, people have dirt on their face, and it doesn't look like, you know make like you know, it looks like these people are live in this place. Right,
1: because they're blue collar workers that are out sure, there like doing a job.
0: Right. For this corporation right. or whatever. And it's like and and it feels like what we just know is sci fi now a lot of times. Yeah. And and it, it feels like it's moving really quickly beyond like it's moving way past that yeah, I don't know what other word I would use, but I guess is fine. But like, that clean...
1: It's the boring utopian view of like what yeah. we're What's... going to right. achieve through science. Sure. It's one of the reasons why I like I'm Silent Running so much too, which is like, whatever, five years prior to this. Mm-hmm. Um, because the further, the more advanced we get, the more the corporations are just going to take advantage of that advancement to like mm-hmm. further... Just enslave you as a person and, like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, look out for their own benefit, mm-hmm. you know, and so, I don't know, like, I, I yeah, I, I think that Alien is, like, a good culmination of, like, the 1970s just in terms of, like, the horror aspect of it and the idea of, like, man versus nature, but also man... Like, for as technologically advanced as they are, like, you can't be saved by technology. And yeah. there's still certain things that are always going to be, like, greater than you. And, um, you know, just, again, like, the art direction of it. Like, I think yeah. it's a beautiful movie. Yeah. I, this,
0: when we did this originally, this was before, actually, because it's in our first, like... Well, we started doing them in early 2018. You broke your leg. And then we just ended up having to go redo episodes because I yeah. didn't know what the hell I was doing in terms of recording back then. So uh, we ended up talking, I think about this movie twice, honestly. And, uh, for the two different recordings, but I didn't watch it because back then I wasn't watching all the movies. Like that didn't start till probably like episode like eight or nine, right after this probably is when I started making sure like, Oh shit, I got to watch all these if I haven't seen them, you know? And so this is the first time I've seen it in 20 years, probably watching it this time. And, um, yeah, it's much, it's better than I had, it's, it's much better than w- it was in my head, right. like, watching it again. Like, it is a really well-paced horror movie, like, for the horror aspect of it. It's really well-paced, and it has a good slow build for that horror aspect of it.
1: It's also a really interesting counterpoint to Star Wars at the time. Sure. It, in the sense that, like, the way they film the interior of the Nostromo is pretty similar to a lot of ways that, like, an interior of like a rebel ship would be or whatever Mm -hmm. but to your point like much more lived in like this isn't just a world where a fantasy you know because that's what star wars is star wars is fantasy even though it's science Mm -hmm. fiction sure this is like this is what functionally maybe things would be like if you were living in space for a long period of time Mm -hmm. and i don't know i mean i think that. I don't know anyone who hasn't seen Alien, but I think if you haven't seen Alien, like, watching it for the first time, it will be really, like...
0: Yeah, I think anything you look at in the past 20 years in terms of sci-fi that has ships in it, like, is, like, taking Alien as inspiration on how that ship's going to look. Yeah. I, in terms of, like, the inter- internally and stuff like that. Like, certainly, like, the, the really popular things like Firefly and, like, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff is certainly taken on... You know,
1: it's, it's not quite as dark, obviously, but it's not a horror. Right. I mean, even stuff like... Movies like seminal movies that people consider you look like 2001, you know, everything there is like perfect. And mm-hmm. even though, I, look, that's like some of my favorite space shit ever, what Kubrick does with that movie. It is. It's just like, mm. here's the humanity be- or here's like the reality behind like living in space. Sure. And then the fact that it's like these tight corridors and like service, whatever. Mm-hmm ducks and you know like this thing this living like organism like infecting it kind of like you know and hunting these people it's yeah
0: and i know you haven't gotten that far into it but uh, another really good example is uh the expanse which if you like sci-fi and you're not watching the expanse like that starts up again next week like it's on all on amazon so definitely watch that but they do a really good job of having different like types of ships where it's like, things are very clean at times. And usually is if it's like a earth ship or if it's like a Mars ship, it's very clean in a lot of ways. But like when you get to the belt and the belters and their ships, it feels very much like these ships, like the, uh, you know, the Nostromo and stuff like that, you know, it's like, um, so yeah, I mean, I think like most sci-fi, like that takes place in space is some, has been influenced by this movie.
1: It's, it's 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 a fantastic movie and yeah, like always interesting and always worth watching. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, so number three on your list is Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, it stars Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Frederick Forrest, Sam Bottoms, Lawrence Fishburne, Larry Fishburne back then. Uh, although they changed that in the credits, I notice now to Lawrence Fishburne yes, rather than Larry Fishburne. It has a 98% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 94% from audiences. Um,
1: I don't know what percent it has from Frank.
0: uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you guess you like about it?
1: (laughs) Look, there's a lot I love about this movie. I mean, it's, it's it's an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, like transposing the setting from like 19th century Congo to the Vietnam War basically, um, Sheen plays a, um, what is he, a colonel or a captain or whatever? Captain. Um, disaffected and unable to return to society, who's, like, requested another tour in Vietnam, who's, um, picked to go on a secret mission to go and assassinate, um, this colonel, who's sort of gone off the grid and kind of, like, integrated himself with, the natives in Cambodia and is viewed as a threat. Now Colonel Kurtz is played by Marlon Brando. So the majority of the movie, 90% of the movie is the journey of, um, Martin Sheen and a group of, you know, you or P boat operators that are kind of picked to like lead him down the river to get to Kurtz to assassinate Kurtz. <clears throat> so it's a series of,
0: long vignettes
1: yeah that's that's a good way to put it long vignettes of like different things they encounter um the horrors of war um the weird almost i don't know counterintuitive need for people to try and superimpose things from home onto the setting where they don't necessarily work Um, surfing and music and just the trappings of normal society. They're taking place in this world that's completely separate from what Mm -hmm. we view as normal society. Um, Good look at the psychological and like real like impact that being in that environment has on people. um, You know, both in terms of like their, their own perception and their mental stability and, just their their life in general because there's a lot of you know like they they kill these characters basically they're sacrificed to you know to this mission where they don't even know what the mission is until they're so far down the river that it's impossible to come back. Right. Um, we both watched uh, Final <laughs> Cut, which right. is the, the third f- version of right, the the 40th, 40th anniversary edition. Um, kind of a trimmed down version of redo which mm-hmm. came out in 2001. Yeah, I guess that's true. The early yeah. 2000s. Uh, which was a long version including like cut footage from the original theatrical release. Yeah. This movie is amazingly shot. It's got some really fantastic set pieces, some really great performances, you know. Um I don't know the actor's name. The guy that plays Chef is great that's in it.
0: Frederick Forrest, I believe.
1: Um, you know, Fishburne, who's only in, like, the first half of the movie, is really good. Um, mm-hmm. all, all of the guys on the P-Boat yeah. are really good. Um, pretty iconic performance by Robert Duvall as a, um, the captain of a... Or the commander of um, an airborne regiment that's mm-hmm. more interested in the idea of, like, surfing. Yeah. Um, Whatever that river is. Yeah. Um,
0: That's so much earlier in the movie than I
1: remembered it being. Even yeah, I've, see, I've seen this movie like a dozen times and it still shocks me how early in the movie that is. It's basically the beginning of the movie. It's like once... It's the first day and a half. 30 minutes of the movie. Right, yeah. Once he gets out of um, yeah. wherever he is. Right. And Hold up. In, Shanghai. Not yeah. Shanghai. Um, wherever. I can't remember. Yeah. So, again... Brando is brilliant in it. Dennis Hopper. Like, the small performances... Kashin's performance is... He's more or less like a cypher through a lot of the movie. I mean, he's just like this guy who's just trying to get through and get his job done. And it's very seldom when he, like... It's actually kind of shocking when he's, like, spurred into action where he has to, like, force them to keep going and force them to do what, you know, their mission is to do. But, you know... I love the smell of napalm in the morning reminds me of victory there's sure. a lot of lines like that and the ride of the Valkyrie's playing as right, they go yeah. and like attack this village yeah.
0: Kurtz's lines the like Brando
1: lines are a lot of them are famous yeah like. the there's stuff from hopper like where yeah. he's talking to um Sheen's character when as he's like captured and when he first gets to Kurtz's compound um the way the Coppola films, the jungle and the river is just beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of like really great juxtaposition of like the destruction of war with like just the beauty and grandeur of nature. Mm. Um, I, I don't. So one of the things they include in this version is I guess what's called like the French, the French plantation scene. Right. Um Which is this, this group of like French colonialists that have kind of just been living in Vietnam um, for 70 years, I guess their family's been there Mm -hmm. and they've more or less like they have their, their servants and their, you know, they're all trained and they've just defended this plantation from attacks and kind of like live this isolationist lifestyle. And this this appeal that, you know, maybe instead of continuing with the mission, they can just stop there and like live with these people and, Maybe have, like, a decent, like, semblance of, like, a real life. Because it's very, very, they have very proper manners. It's very, um, civilized in the way that they live. While still, like, being, you know, these hardened combatants that are, like, experienced jungle fighters. To me, the scene is way too long. And it doesn't really add anything to the movie. Um it's just kind of like a weird break in the middle of like this compelling story. Not. Yeah. Not even like
0: in it's right before the final scene, like it slows down. And, and even my wife agreed with this. Like she does, she rarely watches these movies and I'm watching them, but she's seen it before. And even she thought that like, it was her first comment is like that really slowed like
1: the movie right. down. And, um, well, cause it changes the entire, I mean, it's, it's, because you're coming out of the scene where they get past the bridge at night right. with um aren't you in charge and the guy with the mortar like right, you know yeah. I mean it's it's a, a really tense and well done sure almost like hellish yeah scene absolutely and then they're on the river again for what like 10 minutes and then all of a sudden they're at this place yeah and in the movie the original version of the film they move into Cambodia where Kurtz is at that point, and then it's like you have the them going and whatever, like getting to the compound. Yeah, um, the the assault by the natives, and then the death of yeah. um uh, chief and chef. No chef, chef dies. It's chief. It's oh, chief it's...
0: chief dies. Chief dies right before they get there. That's no, he dies before the
1: plantation. No, that's what I'm saying. In the oh, version, I see. In the original version. Okay. That sorry. happens. Sorry. I, you're, he you're dies, right. and then it moves from his death into them getting to the combat. Right. You're right. Whereas here, he dies. Then the plantation. They want to bury, yeah. or they want to bring his body in. Yeah. And then you have this 25 minute segment that just kind of like stops everything that's happening yeah. to that point. And it kind of like undercuts the importance of his death in a lot of ways, or at least like. Pulls that impact back a little bit, maybe, which I don't like, because I think that it, like, is more natural of a flow for him to die and then to go into, like, that final act. Let me...
0: I agree with you. It needs to be cut. Like, it doesn't need to be there whatsoever. Conceptually, I'm going to defend the scene for a second by saying, here's what I'm going... I'm going to imagine what I think Coppola's thinking. Is... These two characters that you've grown to appreciate and respect. A young kid who's like, you know, horrific, just got like a uh, audio recording, like cassette recording of his like mother talking to right. him. Ends up dying.
1: One of the greatest scenes in the movie too, by the way, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and then chief like, you know, who seemingly might end up killing Willard and then gets a spear through him right and still tries to kill willard <laughs> um even when he's like dying like tries to pull willard's head into the spear that's like sticking out through his chest so you have this tense scene where these two characters that you like kind of the, the, that you've grown to like die they want to bury him and show him respect they find this place and i think Copla is looking at it uh like uh Ulysses and the Loto eaters where it's this like th- it's this temptation to stay like they, like now that like these two people have died like Willard has this possibility of he could just settle th- so there's a woman that is husband's dead right and like there's and He's you know, already, and right. there's
1: He's already stated he never wants to go back to the United States. Right for him, right in civilization, he wants to stay in Vietnam.
0: Sure, but this would allow him to stay in Vietnam. Right. You know, there's there, but there's the, the semblance of society. They're all kind of crazed like he is. Right. She obviously is probably like an opium. I don't know if she's an addict, but she's certainly someone who you know. But all they opium eaters. Sure. And it's like, I think the idea is that this gives him, especially the way he films it with like almost like, I think it's probably like Vaseline maybe or something on on the lens at times. Like it seems like where it's this real dreamy, like kind of like hazy like thing where it's like, right, right when he's getting ready to have sex with her. And it's like, I think that the idea there is that he could live kind of in this fugue state Eating opium and having a relationship and, you know, all with all these kind of broken people and just stay there and be stationary and not continue on and not suffer any more death, not get anybody else killed. And it's this kind of temptation right before he goes to fulfill the act and get everybody else killed as well, probably. Um, Maybe even himself. And I think the idea is it's it's supposed to be that moment of reflection where he could be tempted to stay and he chooses to go on anyway. While I think that conceptually I like the idea and it kind of works in execution and the way it's done, 20 some minutes and where it's placed in the movie, I think it does not work at all and it slows the movie down and makes it worse.
1: So here's my problem. I agree with the last thing you just said. And here's my problem with it. And I've, I've seen apocalypse now I've seen the original version three or four times. I've seen read redo at least once and maybe twice. And I've seen this version. So it's probably like conservatively the seventh time I've seen this mm-hmm. movie, but maybe like the eighth or ninth time in, in all fairness, I think that there's a lot, I, I think a lot of like, when you get beyond just how visually impressive the movie is and it's look, it is Francis Ford Coppola took every ounce of talent he had and poured it into this movie and then never made another good movie after like he just, it's, it's amazing. And the way it looks the way, I mean, he basically films it like a, like a postmodern Dante's Inferno, basically Mm -hmm. like descending through these like depths of hell and, these different things where people are like dying on the banks of rivers and screaming. And it's, 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 it's so compelling visually. I think it's intellectually lazy in a lot of ways, because number one, I don't know. To me, the central question of apocalypse now is how much of humanity is based on your adherence to being civilized And how much of humanity is based on your adherence to your own moral compass. So, is Kurtz a bad man for leaving society and creating a new society? And having some sacrifices, like, you know, his men and his mission. So, like, the literal sacrifice of people's lives and the um, more idealistic sacrifice of, like, his connection with you know, whatever, like the United States and his, right. The ideas of like duty and honor and allegiance, the country, abandoning that to become his own man. Right. So does that make him bad? Is Willard bad because, or is he like, how do you estimate Willard from being a guy who is using the ideas of duty and honor to further his own purpose, which is to immerse himself more in this country that he never wants to leave Mm. because you never really get the impression. I mean, he's doing his job because his job is a means to an end. And he even has that fantastic line towards the end. Like they're going to, you know, they're going to make me a major. They don't even know. I'm not even their army anymore. Yeah. There's lines like that that are fucking just mind blowing. Uh Like the way that like the dialogue, but it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know that they ever answer the question and I don't know that they ever really, the only like maybe Kurt's realizing as he dies that there was nothing there. Like it's just like empty or whatever. Like his horror, <clears throat> the horror thing that he says, which to me is Kurtz realizing that he never found like his, maybe that is the answer is there is no answer. Right. But I think that stuff like, I think the fact that the, plantation scene exists shows that Coppola didn't know the answer to the question and the Coppola didn't know a hundred percent what he was trying to get out of this movie. And ultimately it's like, you know, I mean, Willard leaves, like he kills Kurtz yeah. and him and um, Lance get back on the boat and they're gone. So there, I mean, but I,
0: I know it's not like a strict adaptation, but it's close enough. Heart of Darkness doesn't give you any answers, really.
1: I don't really like Heart of Darkness, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know, it's just not my. It's not, not, not one of my favorite books. Hmm. I mean, it also... It, the, I think one of the things that maybe used to bother me about it, and I've kind of gotten past this, because I, I like this movie... I loved Apocalypse Now the first time I saw it. The first time I saw Apocalypse Now I was probably 13 years old. Maybe 14. And I thought it was amazing. And then I had to watch Apocalypse Now without exaggeration like three times in very short succession for AP English, Freshman Comp, and Intro to Film. or Not, not Freshman Comp. Some other class. Mm-hmm. Or somebody just made me watch it. But definitely Intro to Film. And I got so fucking tired of watching this movie. And I think for a long time, part of the problem with it was, I looked at it as being more about the Vietnam War than it actually is. Because I don't think this movie is about the Vietnam War at all. Right, which which some contemporary critics bitched about
0: it because they said it was, they, they lessened it to the idea that um Coppola was just making like this demonstration movie about the Vietnam War for the fact. To... But he's not because Coppola right. is
1: never commenting on American policy in Vietnam. Coppola is commenting on the destruction of individual humanity that's happening within the confines of this conflict. Mm-hmm. So like Full Metal Jacket platoon those are movies that are about the Vietnam War. Those sure. are anti-war movies. This is not so much an anti-war movie. This is... Uh, basically, it's it, it's an interpersonal journey... You know, through like... The layers of one's own... I don't know, whatever. Like, Willard's... And you as the viewer, because Willard becomes like a proxy in a lot of ways for you. Mm-hmm. Especially with the voiceover narration.
0: Yeah, Like... Which also is criticized um, by Gary Arnold of the Washington Post. He criticizes the narration of saying that it's um, uh, full of premature commentary and character analysis. Um, And he, he, he likens it to the worst of narration in old noirs where the narrator is telling the story from present time about the past and is giving away these little hints of terrible things to come as this, like, way to keep you engaged. Right. And I know exactly what he's talking about, like, in terms of those old noirs, but I don't really, I mean, there's a couple comments like that, but, like, most of it is about, like, his his thoughts about Kurtz. Right more than anything and like kind of like reading through the files and like you know giving you more backstory about the current character i i don't really see that as a valid criticism yeah i I
1: don't i don't think the narration is is any problem in this movie i think the narration actually probably helps this movie a lot in certain Mm -hmm. ways especially by giving you some insight into willard as a character without sheen having to like sure you know, do those things yeah. on screen or whatever. Like, sure. And,
0: and right, because Willard's a broken man. Like, he's not, like, talking to people that right. much. Like, I mean, he's a guy like, that. But you can see he's still thinking.
1: Is you know? drunkenly, like, doing Tai Chi, you know? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah. A day before he's sent out into the jungle to murder this guy who's, yeah. like, a American hero in a lot of ways. It's just, I, I don't know that. I don't know if Coppola ever quite gets. All the way there, I guess. I don't know how else to say it. And, like, I, I think it's a brilliant movie. I think it's one of the most important American films, easily, of, like, the latter half of the 20th century and maybe, like, ever. Um, I just, I don't know. I think it's just a little flawed. And I think that this version, specifically, because it drops that scene, just, like... Yeah. Like, you've got, like, this nice, like, flow, and it's just this big, like damn in the middle of like this flow. Yeah, I agree. I I don't really care for the USO scene much either. I would rather have the USO scene and then with like the trading gasoline to like fuck mm-hmm. the Playboy models. Yeah. Because to me that them abandoning their humanity to become just like objects to be used by these men as a means to an end mm-hmm. plays far more into the ideas I agree with that. That this movie's building Sure. Rather than this. Yeah. Oasis. Kind of in the middle of the jungle. That's like their temptation to stay. Sure. Which I don't think plays into. I the agree with that. I, I honestly
0: don't... like the original version the best.
1: Right. The original version is the cleanest way I think to watch this movie. Sure. And it's the. It gives it the most important. And maybe had I have watched just the original version. Because seriously. And you, you know this just from us being friends for a long time. Like I've hated this movie like hated this movie right frank frank
0: and i have kind of bickered about this movie for close to probably 15 or oh, 16, it's like 20 years 20 it's like yeah. um where you, the the way you were a little bit more eloquent this time the way you used to describe it is yeah i like that shit when i was a pretentious 17 year old
1: is right. the way you I, used to describe i still these, kind of feel that way i mean yeah. i feel like it's kind of a pretentious movie yeah, I could see And I, I think a lot of that... So, for some context. So, John Milius, who wrote this movie with Coppola. Very pro-war right. guy. Like, he's very pro-military. Brilliant writer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But fell out of favor in the 1980s as kind of like societal norms. And like, especially Hollywood changed and went away from the idea that like they became much much more liberal and much more anti-war. Right. And so his ideas and his mindset, and he was very pro-Reagan and very, like, you know, he kind of fell out of favor. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, they use a term, and this is, like, true, and, and I'll reference this to, like, Braveheart, the whole warrior poet thing, mm-hmm. that a man can be, like, this contained... The dichotomy of, like, containing, like, the savagery where he can take another man's life but still appreciate, like, the delicate nature of, like, poetry. Sure. Simultaneously. Or, like, still be this, like, educated, you know, philosopher and then stab you through the heart with a bayonet. Sure. And that there's not, like, some... Marcus Aurelius, right. Right. Yeah. That there's not a disconnect there that doesn't make sense. Hmm. I just think, I think a lot of Apocalypse Now's failings thematically and narrative-wise are overshadowed by the fact that it's one of the most amazingly filmed. Vittorio Storaro's cinematography is brilliant. Coppola's direction is brilliant. The way that they build these sets, the set pieces, the individual components are brilliant. I just don't know that the entire narrative weave is like, I think it just falls a little short. And it's really hard for me to explain why I feel that way. But So,
0: just... watching it this time, which is the first time i watched in a long time now. Like, probably since the mid-2000s. But, because I think I watched it with my grandfather, like, on TNT or some shit, like, one night. Like, so that was even probably edited down a little bit. But it was the original version. But I, first, watching it again, when he comes out of the temple from killing Kurtz. And we talk. I, I mentioned this to you the other week. He puts down his machete. And all of the followers put down their weapons. And it makes me wonder, th- watching it this time, is that Coppola's final judgment on Kurtz? Is the idea that when Willer puts that weapon down, they put their weapons down, is if... It, it, Kurtz created this. Like they're all just followers. They're all just basically like sheep that will go along with like you know, Willard puts his sword down. They put their weapons down. Like they're they're just followers. Right. That if Kurtz was a, it was Kurt. It was the the horror inside of Kurtz. It was like you know what he was, is what created that situation, and that the individual, because of maybe their greatness in some ways, can have ripple effects because of their influence like and create terrible situations right. but that people that that men that are okay. men and women that are good like you know and are great can have maybe like similar like you know is, is the implication to that maybe i i don't know like it's just a thought that crossed my mind for the first time ever watching it and i wonder if that's maybe coppola's final judgment
1: maybe but like one of my problems with that as being the answer to it is that and I understand it's 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 just the theme and like the set piece and not honestly the adaptation of the original source material, but like, why are these like indigenous people? Why are these natives following him anyway? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, why this? Like, yeah. the Great White Hope comes in, right? Yeah. And they just do whatever he wants because yeah. why? Because he's like a white guy. I mean, it's yeah. like it's so. I don't know, so, like, tone-deaf in that respect in terms of, like, I don't know. I understand that, like, that's the the premise of Heart of Darkness anyway. And it's, like, the premise here, and, like, I I try not to, like, get too bogged down in that stuff, but it's still just kind of, like, that scene, it's, like, so he murdered your god, and now he's your god because he's just, like, the white guy that came in on the boat? Like, that's... I don't know. It's just like a, a lot of that stuff like, again and like leading up to that point just kind of falls flat to me. And yeah, It's something they never even attempt to explain. And it's hard because like the scenes with Kurt sitting there in half shadow like talking. Yeah. Especially the scene where it's like just the yellow of the fire is on half of his face mm-hmm. and the rest of his face is black and he's just sitting there and just mono, like monologuing or giving a soliloquy or whatever it is. Is amazing. Like, it looks beautiful. The performance is, like, impactful. And it's just... I just don't Mm -hmm. know if, like... I don't know that I've ever gotten to the point where I feel like, yeah... Like, I really understand what's trying to be said here. And it means something to me. Mm. You calling it a series of vignettes, I think, is the best way to put it. And it's a brilliant Mm. series of vignettes. Mm. But I'm not ever sure if that narrative thread from him in the hotel room in the first scene... To the end of this movie with him like going back to the boat and like leaving the compound. I don't know if it really connects 100%. I mean, that being I, said... I, I think the
0: first 20 minutes with him in the hotel being given the mission, the voiceover narrations, and the final 25 minutes. That's the story.
1: You're right. 100% it is.
0: And everything else is just... It's just this,
1: backdrop. Right. Yeah, But I don't know if that makes... I, th- I I I think that's a flaw in some ways mm. to me. Like sure. I don't know no, that. I, like I'm fine with you having that opinion. I like this movie a hell of a lot more this time than I've liked it <laughs> the past. Like our time. arguments before is because she would sit there and say like fuck that movie. That movie's terrible. It's fucking sh- shit. <laughs> that's 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 why I, I also to argue hate over. Francis Ford Coppola a lot. Like Francis Ford Coppola to me is one of the biggest mm. disappointments right. as a director. Ever, you know, and like somebody with so much talent just turning into like such a turd. Sure, and then re- his recent controversy with like trying to claim that the Marvel movies aren't cinema. You know, motherfucker, you made Jack. Like, come. Oh, on. did he come out and say that too? Yeah, he he like, like defended Scorsese. He basically like took Scorsese's comments and like one up them, mm. and was like, "It's garbage. Mm. Like, you know, it's it's not cinema. It's did not you film. just say he made Jack?" Yeah, man, oh, that yeah. motherfucker making... Like,
0: fuck. I, <laughs> I, I... I didn't know if I actually heard you say that just now or if just in my mind I knew that's what Look, you were going anytime, to say.
1: Anytime Francis Ford Coppola comes up, I will always point out the fact that this man made a movie with Robin Williams. It's like a... I don't even know what that fucking disease is called, but it's just fucking awful movie. One of the worst most pablum saccharine bullshit pieces of fucking filth I've sat through in my life. And he has no right to criticize anything after making that fucking Francis Ford Coppola.
0: <laughs> okay. And on that note, we will go ahead and move on to number two. Okay. So number two on your list is the marriage of Maria Braun. It's directed by Reiner Warner Fassbender stars, Hannah Shigula. Klaus Lawich, Ivan Desny has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 90% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the
1: movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so it's the story of uh, Maria Braun, um, who at the end of World War II is married to Herman Braun, who she's spent, what is it, one day and one night with, I think is what they... The way they keep saying it. Um, he has not returned from the war, so she, for the first part of the movie, is kind of wearing like a sign, asking for information about him, and sort of trying to like live her life in, uh, you know, post war Germany. Um, she's told that he dies, so she kind of becomes a prostitute, really. Like, she's a lady who goes to these clubs that the American occupation is in and like dances with American soldiers. Um, ends up forming a romantic attachment to one soldier who gets her pregnant um and her husband comes back and murders him um which sends him to jail um causes her to get an abortion and then she starts to use her sexuality and like her kind of ability to like manipulate men in situations to gain um a measure of power over this wealthy industrialist um which she uses to gain Prominence in his company, this, like, sewing machine company or whatever. Um, I guess that's what they do. They manufacture clothing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Until (laughs) she she gains, like, a measure of wealth. um, Still kind of finds herself, like, unfulfilled in a lot of ways. It's a really interesting examination, I guess, of, like, not only the power of, like, women to... Like, what what constitutes, I guess, power in a relationship and, like, the power of someone, specifically women, who can use their sexuality and, like, men's desire for them to sort of get what they want. And her clinging to the idea that she's married to this man in order to kind of keep people almost at arm's length and be able to control the situations through the idea that she's never going to fully consummate a relationship with anyone and like marry them because she's already married until she's in the position where she's you know her husband's with her and she realizes that it's not this idyllic thing that she thought it might be I guess or this idea that she kept in her mind that like this was the man that she loved and because there's a lot of times that like I guess three or four times in the movie where that that topic comes up that she says that she loves someone but it's not the same as being in love with them in the way she is with her husband. Um and then when he comes back, he turns out to be like kind of, I guess, disappointing to her. Um, in the sense that like he's willing to watch like the soccer match and just kind of sit there and accept when he wants to have sex with her and you know. And it's a, it's her her performance in it is is really I think what drives the movie more than anything. And I, I really like Rainer Werner Fassbender's, like, direction. Um, I think that he's a pretty amazing realist in terms of a director, like, but still is able to frame things in a way where there's symbolism to him. Like, there's early on, um, like, early preoccupation where it's stuff like cigarettes and dresses and whatnot is... Bottles of vodka. Those are the things that the currency that she's kind of selling herself for. And there's a scene early where she manipulates her mother into doing what she wants with like packs of cigarettes. And there's a really great shot. One of my favorite shots in the movie. Really close up of like the ends of the cigarettes coming out of the pack with like Mm -hmm. you can see in detail like the tobacco in them. Yeah. And just like the the import of this this small item that you might not think about as being, like, important, but... He does close-ups on a lot of those things, because I
0: think, I'm pretty sure you can track the movie by the things she trades to get other things. Right. And, because, what, she gets a pin from her mother at that point, is that right? She
1: trades it for a brooch, that she uses the brooch to trade for a dress. Right. That she then gets hemmed and sewn, that she can go out and go to these clubs and dance. Right, And it's, like, there's a whole series of things that she
0: trades that I think is trying to show, like, how industrious she is of how, like, she uses, like, you know,
1: trading one thing for another in order to get to the station that she wants to be at. And the fact that she views, like, her body almost as, like, one of those things that she's just able to trade. And the thing that she's able to trade the most for, you know, continued success and power and and wealth. Really, it's just it's one of my one of my favorite so it's a trilogy it's it's this movie Veronica Voss and Lola um are like his i don't he calls it the BRD trilogy um and he died at a very early age i think he was 37 when 37, he died yeah um, cuz he was like a massive cocaine abuser yeah um and this was actually a pretty troubled production from what i understand that Um, he had like a falling out with like a long-term collaborator over this, and it was really difficult in like the editing of it, but... And he had to, I think, patch things up with Shagula,
0: because she had been in a lot of his movies since film school, and like, they had had a massive falling out, because, seemingly because he was, he's kind of a prick, but I mean, I guess that makes sense. A drug addict. Right, sure, but, uh, and he had to like, kind of
1: coax her back into starring in this movie. Um... But it's 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 fascinating. A lot of it's fascinating in the sense that you know they they recreate the destruction of Germany Mm -hmm. post World War II, and as the movie progresses, you can see the way the way that he films it. You can see the the city like rebuilding itself and becoming like modern again, and Mm -hmm. conveniences starting to come back, and people starting to like live like more of a semblance of a normal life. Um, and yet whenever she wants to talk to someone about like things of import or especially things relating to like her personal, whatever, like feelings or emotions, she always takes them to this bombed out building that's like yeah. near her house where they have to like kind of climb. It always reminds me of, um, the fallout series of games, like where it's like the destroyed second sure. floor. Yeah. They're like climbing mm-hmm. over the like exposed yeah. rafters. Isn't that,
0: isn't that their old school house or something like yeah, that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. But it's just like that you know, that, um, that, that attachment to the past where Mm -hmm. like, that's the place where she can go and sort of like talk about her feelings and her emotions right? and not be like completely divorced from it. Mm -hmm. Um, but just like, I mean, it's, it's a very human drama. It's a very, I think, brilliant examination of, again, like personal power and, you know, what are you like, what? what are the sacrifices you make to basically like survive and then even beyond because like initially it's just to survive in that environment is why she starts doing it and then her increasing willingness to like, you know, sleep with people to close business deals mm-hmm. and, you know, make her the company successful because she genuinely cares for um I can't remember the character's name, but the the industrialist. Yeah. Um And then like, you know, what what constitutes like love for someone. Sure. Um, and I mean,
0: she, she's doing all this. Like she, she, she can convince herself to do all this because it's all in her mind in service to the idea. She's doing it for her husband. Right. Like that, be, you know, that, that she's doing it because she, she has a husband she loves him. And that's why she's able to do these things. And it's kind of like what she needs to get to where she's at. And the ending leads to her realizing that that thing that she desired for all
1: those years isn't what she thought it would be. Well, see, I also think think the ending, too, is, like, I think part of what allows her to do what she does is because she feels like she's sacrificing for him. Right. Because she's the one that's, like, sacrificing all these things in deference to this love that they have. And he sacrifices being with her in order for them to be like, um, the beneficiaries of the will for this industrialist when he dies. Right. And so he emigrates to Canada and like lives mm-hmm. in Canada for, you know, and sends her like the Rose um, sure. every month right, to show that he still loves her. But then she realizes that like, well, he tells her like, you know, cause they 'cause they're reading the will and she learns at that point that mm-hmm. he made this agreement. Right. Um, you know to do that to kind of like desert her basically mm-hmm. um in knowledge that it would eventually at some point get them like they'll get them both like this large windfall and the entirety of this man's estate and that's when like she really like starts to break down finding out that like he had done these things too and i think that's like <clears throat> in some ways makes her feel like she's kind of lost that power of like being able to say like well sure i did these things for you and now because it's whatever it goes both ways like it's
0: yeah there was part of her that she wanted to be the one that sacrificed for him and when she finds out that but even before that her changing all the outfits shows uh that she's uncomfortable with the current state of things because she can't find the right outfit and i think that's a signifier that she can't find she's changed all these personalities over the years she can't find the right personality to make it work with her husband now that they're together. While he's just kind of tuned out listening to the soccer game, um, so yeah, yeah I, I, I it's it's a very interesting personal drama and that's how I viewed it. I've read a number of critical essays that uh, people that are much more knowledgeable about German history than me that apparently there's a lot of kind of stuff about German politics mm-hmm. like in the aftermath of World War II up until that point Well right. Right, that's going on that like I get a little bit of it but I don't I'm not knowledgeable enough to get all of it but even the the game that he's listening to at the end I read apparently is Germany's first big first big moment on the world stage after everything that happened after World War II and it's supposed to be this kind of like Pyrrhic type thing like because at the very end is like all you hear is like you know, Germany, we win, we win, like or something like that, as the houses exploded and right. you know all that kind of stuff. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff too, like so <clears throat> it's criticizing, I guess, like a lot of the and and you hear a lot in the radio, like of the uh, chancellor, I guess is was it still a chancellor after World I think War so, II? Yeah. yeah, like the chancellor, like um, like speaking and uh, like you know how he basically his, I I did notice that when I was watching is that. How at first it's like, you know, uh, we're not going to be armed. And then later it's like, well, we're not going to be armed, but if we want to, we could. And right. it's like this kind of
1: changing rhetoric, <laughs> like this Weasley rhetoric over time. Well, that was the thing is that they dismantled the in- German industrial complex post-World War Two. Like they took away sure. all the power.
0: Sure, sure. Um, but their right to arm, he's arguing, like <laughs> they still have the right to arm. They've just chosen not to. And I think that... Um, I think like that kind of I I have a feeling that that kind of like uh, changing stance over time is also indicative of the way she changes herself in order to fit situations and stuff right. like that. And
1: yeah, that's an but, interesting point.
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of really good critical stuff that I read, but again, it's it's you have to know a lot about German history. And I mean,
1: I, I don't. When they're when she's first involved with the industrialists and he brings her into the negotiations with his accountant and the American firm to um, sell them these industrial sewing machines to allow them to kind of sort of like rebuild their business. It's her willingness to like basically sleep with the Americans that gets them. Sure. And that's, that's the thing is because the accountant is basically like, well, we can't afford to do this. You know, we're going to have to walk away from this deal. And she allows them to move forward with the deal, even though he's not comfortable with how she did it. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I guess like maybe that is like, what do you, how much is too much to sacrifice, you know, in order to like kind of regain some of your, whatever, like former glory or former power. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really well shot, really beautiful film. Um, some really good, like dialogue choices, mm-hmm. like the scene where she, is speaking when she first meets the industrialists on the train and they're speaking German and the American soldiers basically like saying he's going to fuck her and she tells him that she's going to kick him in his balls and yeah. then get him arrested and kind of like drives him off. And it's sort of like that turning point where as Germans, they're kind of regaining their autonomy away from like these Americans mm-hmm. that are have like occupied them. Right. Um, That's one of my, maybe my favorite line of dialogue in the movie. And it's, it's so stilted because of the way it's done, but she's being interviewed after Herman, her husband um, kills the guy that she was sleeping with Mm -hmm. um, the American soldier. And she's trying to explain through an interpreter to why, whatever he is, like the MP that's like overseeing like the trial and inquisition or whatever, Mm -hmm. and trying to explain how there's different ways to express love. Right. But he can only use one word for it, so he doesn't understand. Yeah. And him saying, like, so you loved one and you loved another, it's the same thing. And basically them saying, like, well, you know, your language doesn't even allow you to understand, like, how it right. can be different. And it's yeah. really well done, really good scene. It is. And
0: I, I read that those two German words, one is this kind of, like, yeah, like, almost, like, everlasting, romantic, spiritual kind of connection. Where the other is this more, like, transient, right? you know, type of love that goes beyond just sexual, but you know is is not like the forever type thing.
1: But yeah, really, um, really powerful movie. Really, yeah, really absolutely. well acted.
0: And yeah, I had not seen this before, and <clears throat> it certainly, um, yeah, it certainly uh affected me a lot. Like, I think there's a lot of depth here in terms of just. Just stuff with relationships and stuff like that, even without getting into maybe some of the socio-political stuff that I don't right. quite understand. I think that there's a lot going on here that's uh, worth examining.
1: Yeah, is a pretty talented director, and it's it's a shame that he died as early as he did. Um, but he has some other really great movies, like like Veronica Voss is really good, and is mm-hmm. good, and um, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, probably my favorite Fassbender movie. And that's like earlier in the decade. Yeah, I think um, if I
0: rewatched it again, there's definitely stuff that I, there's stuff I'd, I I want to rewatch it again at some point. There's stuff that I, that I've forgotten already now, like different like scenes and different points of dialogue that I think are really important, not only to the movie but just generally I think are kind of important thoughts. And um, yeah, I, I, I yeah I think the guy's really interesting. I'd be interested to watch a couple. so it's his,
1: it's really interesting how he... a lot of his is on Criterion. Is that right? Yeah, he's got yeah. a lot of movies on Criterion. Yeah. Uh-huh. The the way that um I, I think the whole BRD trilogy is on Criterion. Ali mm-hmm. Fury's the soul is on Criterion, definitely. And there's a few others. Mm-hmm. One of the things too is that the way he films men caressing her, like mm-hmm. in like postcoital like when they're laying in bed mm-hmm. and that he treats her body more like it's very objectified, but it's not objectifying her. It's more objectifying like the act or mm-hmm. like their feeling of possession, like the way they run their hands, like along like the small yeah. of her back and stuff. And sure. it's, it's really telling because when the American soldier does it, it's filmed in very like naturalistic light with like sweat. Like it's, it's very clearly like post and you can see sweat and you can see like sort of like the dilapidated nature of the place around them. And then mm-hmm. like at, later when she's with the industrialist, it's lit in like, these soft blues and yellows, and it's very, like, almost classical looking and, like, um, fancy, almost. Like, Mm -hmm. she's now, she's not just this common object, she's now this, like, I don't know, almost, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but, like, she's actually increased the value of herself in some ways, just by, um you know, just by like the company that she's keeping. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really well done. And like, there's a lot of small things like that, that he's like his, he has a great eye for that kind of detail. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I agree. Yeah. All right. So number one on the list is, uh, Stalker. It's directed by Andre Tarkovsky stars, Alexander Kaden, Kaden Elisa Friedenlich. Niccolo Grinko and Anatoly Solonitsyn it has a hundred percent from critics on Round Tomatoes and 93 percent from audiences we talked about this back in August during that episode I referenced earlier it's episode 44 the top 570 sci-fi movies it was number one on your list then it's number one on this list yeah. I think I think I made the claim that it might be in my top 20 movies of all time um, so both of us I think really like this movie a lot. Oh, yeah. And um so you want to go ahead and just
1: kind of recap a little bit. Um yeah so again like we we've talked about this pretty recently but it's a uh, set in a I don't I don't think post-apocalyptic is the right way to put it but like a alternate reality where there's areas of the world and specifically Russia that have been touched by some kind of alien presence and humans have a lot of difficulty going in, but the appeal is still there. So the stalker is this guy that can kind of like guide you through this zone that they call it where, um, you're look like the, ultimately you can find this room where like your wishes can be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So the stalker takes a, a writer and a scientist Mm -hmm. into the zone with him. Um, they pay him to do it and like, that's his job. And he leaves his wife and his um, kind of mutant child behind in order to do that. Um, It's, I mean, there's, there's not many movies that have like for being as abstract as stalker is in terms of like, it's just as overall theme and like the narrative of it because it's not, you know, it's it's completely immersing you in unbrand like a a world that is of its own creation, I guess. And I know it's based on whatever roadside picnic, like a book, but mm-hmm. and like I don't know, just be so impactful, like in the imagery of it and the dialogue and the actions that happen to these people <clears throat> in such a small setting, without like a whole lot of like real action that's occurring you know they're mostly just kind of like walking through like this wasteland almost um and it's
0: so quiet a lot of the film that when you actually when think like the the sound is so important in this movie yeah like the this, sound of wind the sound of sure the sound water. design in this is really great like yeah. it's brilliant
1: visually set design is amazing yeah. um again just like the idea that he's got like these metal nuts that are on a string that he like whirls around and throws and that's what like leads them to the right path and it's it's such a weird conceit that like you immediately just kind of believe just because of the way they sell it it's
0: the magic of film yeah Yeah,
1: and there's a lot of things like that where the fluid nature of time and space that they kind of play with and Mm -hmm. like perception and memory and Mm -hmm. um I don't know, just there, there's so many small things that they're not even small, there's so many things that, that Tarkovsky does in this movie that are just brilliant and sets it against this like completely alien backdrop of like you know, which was really like a abandoned power plant, mm-hmm. you know, in Russia or Belarus or wherever they filmed it, I can't remember. Yeah. Um But I don't know, it's it's And I'm assuming the whole thing is a stand
0: in for post war Like devastated areas, like and socialism, like the the, the, the effects of socialism and stuff like that. So, the the, the,
1: the weird thing about that is that, so, certainly where he lives, not the zone itself, but like, right, but like, communism is still strong in 79. I mean, it's not until the mid 80s that you get perestroika and the fall of like, you know, the Soviet Empire. And I think it's far enough from like, I don't know. I don't know how much devastation was caused. I, I think it's just, I mean, I guess it's just a condemnation of like the, um, the economic and political system yeah. of communism in general, just that can let places like fall into disrepair like that. Sure. Um, and have people that like, you know, cause they're, they don't really show you much of society. We get the impression that people can't care for themselves, like unless they're yeah. wealthy or they have something. Um, because the stalker lives like they, him and his family live in like this kind of one room ramshackle, like shanty kind of, yeah. and his job is something that he's not even allowed to do. Like it's illegal for him to do it. And it, not only is it like physically dangerous cause you can mm-hmm. die in the zone, but it's like, you know, they get, he was in jail for a period of time mm-hmm. for like being a stalker and. Well,
0: right. Like the military police, like try to kill him as they enter the zone. Right.
1: Yeah. And you get the impression that he would go back to jail for a very long time if he gets caught. Sure. And his wife doesn't want him to like risk that. She just wants him to like right. live with her. Um I don't know. It's it's a it's mm. it's a beautiful movie yeah. and it's one of the I think most visually striking movies of the last like forty or fifty years. Um and definitely one of the most like intellectually challenging movies I think sure. to watch. Sure. Yeah without ever being like overwrought or right, pretentious. Yeah. I mean, it's very it's very natural. Very grounded yeah. in its own reality and it like again, it lets you believe that reality mm-hmm. just because it believes it and it doesn't beat right. you over the head with it and it doesn't like try and like smack you with like the symbolism and whatnot. Um, he's another director where he's kind of wish he had more movies of his to watch and um I've only seen this in Solaris, so But, I mean, Solaris is really good, too. But this is, like, in my opinion, by far, like, his masterpiece. And really just, like, the most... And 100% by critics is not surprising, because I don't know, like, what you would even criticize. Right, sure. Maybe length, and maybe, like, the fact that it is kind of abstract, but it's never obtuse, you know? It's just...
0: Yeah, I think a lot of viewers, not critics, but viewers, just saw it was boring. Like, which is, you know, usually a common refrain from people, like, viewers that dislike
1: something. Yeah.
0: But yeah, no, it's a fabulous movie. I stand by what I said. Like, probably is probably like a top twenty movie for me, like that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's 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 really maybe not like my favorite movies, but in terms of best movies I've ever seen, it's certainly in that. Yeah,
1: and the way that they make the zone this like living thing, and just these again like, the the thing, and we we've, we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast, but just like that, like the vague unease of like empty spaces, kind mm-hmm. of, and like something that's abandoned and just the way that you shoot it you know and like i don't know it's 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 such like a living thing like this area that they're in that he infuses it with so much personality that it's basically like the fourth main character of the film sure
0: yeah i i I find a lot of really we talked about a little bit one night a week or two ago but it's like i find a lot of just really interesting connections between so many of these movies like so many of them dealing with the idea of like like devastation of like land or like city like you know so many of them dealing with like things after like the aftermath of war um or like the horrors that come from war i mean even to the point where there's the crossover between like the corporation and alien and like the idea of the company in right. um apocalypse now which is a which is one of the few like direct references to um part of darkness the idea of the company uh but there's just like so much here like in uh that's going on about like you know stuff in terms of relationships and stuff like that like it's it's a really weird time but it certainly yeah it definitely feels like things are some somehow getting dealt with on some kind of psychic level And that's what's coming to the forefront here as we move, like, out of the decade of the 70s and, like, into the 80s, which is a totally different type of film. It is. Like, when we get into the 80s. Like, Like um, the
1: the action-adventure, the fantasy, I mean, it, it kind of is, like... The revival of sci-fi that comes from Star Wars yeah, and Alien stuff like
0: that. I mean, right. It,
1: it kind of is like pushing into like this futurism, but yeah. very much grounded into the idea that like, almost like the rebuilding of the nuclear family and the rebuilding of the idea of like, I don't know. Things are much more kid-centric yeah. in the 80s. Like it's,
0: um, it, it, yeah, it's really interesting. Cause it's like, if you look at 69 to 79... There's a difference. Right. Like like in terms of film. That was my favorite favorite decade of film. Sure. But it's like you look from seventy nine and what's coming in eighty nine, it's like it's like it feels like twenty or thirty years apart.
1: It really does. Like it, it's it's a it's astounding. Um and we had lived a whole life at that point in that span of time, so sure. Yeah. Um, so
0: yeah, I mean Eighty nine is going to be a wildly different list, um, than than what's come in sixty nine and
1: seventy nine. <clears throat> um, so any I've, final thoughts? Yeah, them? I was um, I was really happy with with this week. Um yeah. I thought it was a really good, interesting, like group of films to watch. Um, really enjoyed watching all of them again, and I was actually pretty surprised by Apocalypse Now. At how much I just kind of enjoyed it, yeah. Uh, this time, um, even though there's still stuff that bothered me about it, yeah. Um, and also, I I think it's you know you've got so you've got Coppola, you've got Fassbender, you've got Scott, um, Tarkovsky, and even um, um Volker, uh, Schloendorf, or whatever, yeah. Like these important directors that are making like really good films and they're all very clearly their own movies. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And they're all like different in their own way, but like to your point there's this common thread that kind of flows through all of them of like change and moving past like your own like past history or whatever. And I don't know, it's just um it was it was a really good list. Really good, yeah. good five movies to watch.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I I enjoyed all of them for one reason or another. So Okay, so that's the episode for this week. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with the top five films of 1989. As always, you can follow us on Facebook uh, or Instagram. And if you have any ideas for the upcoming year, you can contact us at either of those places or you can contact us uh, on Gmail at two guys 5 movies at gmail.com. Other than that, everybody, have a great week and thank you for listening. Thanks and have a good night.